This is Mark Rappaport, owner of Marky Sparky Toys, and of all the products he's invented, one stands out as the absolute worst. The Doinkit is a strange ball that doesn't do much. And unfortunately for Mark, it hasn't been the biggest seller either. It's not all fun. It's all fun in games until nobody buys your toys. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, the quality of the toy shouldn't matter when you're selling to kids. So I paid Mark a visit with a way to get those Doinkits sold. When you're a kid, what's the one thing you want more than anything? Power. No. To not be seen as a baby. It's very easy to market to kids because their brains are so small. So rather than selling a ball, Mark should be selling an identity for children. That identity, that owning a doinkit is the only way to prove you're not a baby. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is marketing 101. According to you. Well, that's what sells products. Fantastic. Fantastic. I am so excited. Am I sensing some sarcasm? Yes. They have all of these routines of how things work, and it was really tricky to explain how we are different and why we think it would work. I think it's with any industry, and if you look at anything that is moving from a traditional retail or high street offering online, it's very hard to bridge that gap to someone. Because to me, if your service is not remarkable from the beginning, then there's no need to put marketing money behind it. Because then you should put your money in product development or service development. So what happened was... I went to Ikea, got the cheapest desks you can get. We all had laptops already, so we didn't have to buy anything there. We got the internet installed pretty fast. Then it's just getting to work. So if you're willing to put in the effort, I really think it's so rewarding when you start to see how you're pulling in customers and seeing how customers enjoy the service. That's the most fulfilling thing. So my name is Christian Jacobson. I live in London, 32 years old. I am one of the co-founders of Medino. We are a digital pharmacy on the UK market. So basically trying to bring the high street offering of pharmacy online and just trying to really make it super simple to shop, really pushing fast delivery times and sort of really pushing a great digital experience for our customers. And how do you spell Medino? It's M-E-D-I-N-O. So yeah, Medino.com. So you can go check it out if anyone wanted to take a look at it right now. And you're 32 years old? Correct. Are you a pharmacist or something? No, not at all, actually. My background is in business. I've worked in IT consultancy sales, not really any pharmacy background at all. And I think that's also coming for the whole founding team. None of us had any pharmacy background. So this is sort of more of, we're really approaching the pharmacy industry and sort of challenges in the supply chain and in e-commerce from a very software centric approach. And I think that's also one of our differentiators. What made you want to become a drug dealer? <laughs> I think like if we look at where the idea comes from, it comes from a bit of frustration, and this is sort of common for, for everyone in the founding team. If you look at the UK and how e-commerce has evolved, it has one of the highest e-commerce penetrations in the world after China. And if you look at sort of the stuff that you shop online, there is something for everything. Like you shop your sporting goods, you shop your groceries, you have Amazon for a lot of basic stuff that you have in your household or electronics and stuff like that. But when it comes to pharmacy shopping in the UK, there is a very traditional consumer behavior that you'd still go to the high street. And sort of when we researched it more, 
I mean, the frustration comes from us not being able to find our stuff in one shop online. We'd had to go to different e-commerce players to be able to find everything that you would buy in a pharmacy. So medication, toiletries, skincare stuff, etc. So for us, that's sort of what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring the whole high street offering online because of we couldn't find anyone else doing it. And when we started to research the market and see sort of how does this look in other countries in Europe, we saw that in Sweden, where I'm from, and also in Germany or in Italy or in Holland, there is sort of one company or a few that have become sort of a top of mind brand when it comes to buying all your pharmacy products online. But in the UK, there is still not really that someone who has taken that sort of position. And we thought that was really exciting and could definitely see an upside in sort of trying to build a business around that. So you said, I guess you got your ideas from there's other countries near the UK that kind of had similar online offerings and or I guess the UK didn't have it. Why did the UK not have it after doing some research? We sort of asked that question. I don't think that there is a super clear cut answer. There are services that offer repeat prescriptions and there are services that offer beauty products. But sort of if you look at the consumer behavior where UK customer, average customer goes to the pharmacy 12 to 16 times a year and they buy multiple different types of product sets in terms of yeah prescription or health and beauty products, toiletries, etc. It's just no one who has taken that whole offering. There are a few that have tried in the past. And I think that it just comes down to timing there because there are definitely competitors that have been around longer than us but they haven't really seen this type of growth that we have seen other companies manage to do in other countries. If I'm looking at it now, that's the only thing, like when I go to your website and I look at it, it seems very simplistic. I'm just curious, like how big is your company? Like how many customers do you have and what's your revenue and employee count? Yeah, sure. So if we look at revenue last year, it was 3.2 million pounds. And that's our second year of operating with a full pharmacy license and nine people on the business operations side. And then we have our own warehouse where we pack all the orders. And that's sort of fluctuating between, I'd say at the moment is five to 10 warehouse workers, depending on how many orders we have to pack. But also if we can go back to when you say simplistic site and sort of really bare bone in terms of design, and I know it's like in your face with a lot of products, there is actually a lot of thinking behind that. Because if you look at sort of pharmacy as a shopping experience, and it's a very transactional thing, you go to the pharmacy because you have to. You need to buy toiletries or medication or something like that. And it comes of having to do it rather than wanting to do it. So for us, the site is really optimized on converting the customer. So it should be super easy to find the products, to browse them, and also really easy to go all the way from entering the site to actually checking out. We actually ran tests on this where we counted the amount of clicks needed from when you enter the site until you've checked out. And you can do that in six clicks if you're using one of the Apple or Google Pay services. If you try that with a competitor, it's quite likely that there will be typing or at least 10 clicks or so. That is really like looking at the conversion funnel has been really important for us and we see how it really works. We get also great reviews from customers saying, you know, how easy it is to shop. And to us, that's really important. No, I'm feeling you. That's the whole reason I brought it up because when I said the website and if people go check it out and now more people are probably going to check it out. So I believe you because when we talked before, I'm like, this guy's a pretty smart guy. I bet he set this up this way for a reason. It's kind of like when you go to Amazon, there still is almost 
a fresh home page, but yours is like whenever you search for something, it's already right there. Like you could put so many things in your basket right away without doing the search or having a nice quote unquote landing page. So trust me, I believe that there are stop put into it. And that's the reason I wanted to bring it up is you don't see this a lot. And you might think, hey, might be kind of a smaller company, but you know, I bet this guy did this for a reason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's sort of our approach in looking at sort of what can you do with software to make the transactions as easy as possible and as cost efficient as possible. So what you see on the site, I think that's also reflected, you know, in the background. So the systems that run this, everything is built by us from scratch. And in doing so, we can be really cost efficient from the, when the order comes in or actually from pulling in the customer to the site all the way to finalizing and sending out the order. We're working all the time to make it even more efficient. And I think that's also our consultancy background in the founding team. That's sort of what we're used to do, really like analyzing processes and making them as efficient as possible. We see ourselves as a tech company and a logistics company where we're trying to really just optimize that process as much as possible. I was wondering, like, are you a computer programmer or something? Like, what's your background? I study business. So I have a bachelor in business, marketing and accounting. And if we look at the founding team, we have our CTO, who is a computer engineer. He studied game development. And then we have another engineer who's also one of the co-founders. He studied, I think, mechanical engineering. And then the last co-founder, he is uh, also an engineer, but he's also found another business in the past. And that's sort of been a consultancy business. And that's where we met as a team in that business. So we worked together before we founded Medino. So it sounds like you got a lot of smart technical guys on your team there. I think that combination has been really a success for us. I mean, I don't code. I have tried, but that's not really my thing. I really like the business aspect, but the rest of the founding team are really strong on building software. So that's sort of been our angle also in approaching this to really balance both business development and software development and really building systems tailored for their use. What's your personal day-to-day -day in the business? Do you have a routine day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week now as what you do versus the other guys? In the beginning, sort of heading up anything that is business-related function. So the biggest part has been merchandising and buying and working with just onboarding new suppliers, making sure that we keep stock levels, but also everything that builds into the accounting aspect. In the beginning, I was doing all of our accounting, but that's sort of quite quickly, we had to bring in extra help there just to make sure, because yeah, we grew quite fast and it was quite a lot of processes we could make better there. But nowadays, also because we have brought in quite a substantial funding round recently, it also puts more need to look at reporting, make sure that we always or as quick as possible can assess if a new initiative is working or not so that we can change our tactics. So I'm looking a lot of like, what information do we need to make really informed business decisions? And the buying part, I'm still heavily involved in that. But since about a month ago, we've also recruited a person who helps me and is taking on that role full time now. How much in funding did you recently take on? So the recent round, that was in October last year, and it was 5.6 million pounds. The type of investors that we have now are a quite great mix of both private investors and mostly family offices, as well as a couple of bigger investment companies. It's a good mix. It's actually no like what you would define as VC capital, I think. It's more uh, family offices or investment companies. So why did you think you needed funding? Because I imagine you had to do a lot of pitches going around to, if you have all these different investors, if you will. Yeah, I think when we look at this business and how we've built it, in the beginning, we had a couple of investors who really supported us from really early on, like before we had a product or a service out. 
we're super grateful to have that backing really early on. And it was really needed because if you're building a product from scratch, there will be time of building before you actually can show any revenue. And I think that when you have a service and you're developing a service like ours, there is so much work that needs to be put into just developing the flows of the logistics and the website before you actually want to start market also. Because to me, if your service is not remarkable from the beginning, then there's no need to put marketing money behind it because then you should put your money in product development or service development. So what happened was we developed these systems. If you look at the buying and the logistics and fulfilling orders, keeping in mind that we really wanted to build a big business and be able to scale. And having done that, then sort of the spring happened with the pandemic. And of course, we were definitely not prepared for anything like that. But having had that long-term goal of building a big business, our systems scaled really well. So when that happened and we sort of saw how we, I think we went five-fold increase in revenue over a month. When that happened, we saw the potential and also the market window that opens. Because basically, if you talk to other companies within e-commerce, everyone will say that sort of what happened with the pandemic is that maybe three or five years of transitioning to e-commerce behavior was condensed over like six months or so. We see that market window. And that's also, I think, what investors have seen. In that sense, timing-wise, with the scalability of our systems and seeing how much faster the market transitioned to digital, that made us realize that we can take this opportunity and really build a big customer base, but we will require external funding for that. Hey, Freddie and friends, it's Energetic Austin here. Are you itching to get back to what you love? Me too. I can't wait to enjoy travel with my friends and family. But you know what? This time, I want to make sure the next time I head to the airport, my experience is fast, safe, and easy as possible. That's why I'm excited to talk about Clear today. See, Clear is a secure identity platform that creates frictionless journeys at airports and beyond. Move faster through airport security and feel confident returning to who, where, and what you love. With Clear, all you need is you. After a quick one-time enrollment with your government-issued ID, you can use just your face or eyes for safer, touchless entry at airports, stadiums, and more. Guess what? You can also create your account online before going to the airport. Once you get there, a friendly ambassador helps you finish the process and you can use Clear immediately. Join over 5.5 million people who are already using Clear. Once you become a member, you can use Clear for faster, touchless, seamless entry across Clear's network at airports, stadiums, arenas, concert spaces, office, restaurants, and so much more. Clear members can add up to three friends or family members to their account for a discounted rate. And even better, kids under 18 can tag along for free. You know, I just signed up for Clear and I can't wait to start using it. I guess the only problem for me is I don't have any friends. So I don't have anyone that I can give my discounted rate to. But you know what? Clear is such an awesome deal that even if I had friends, they don't need that friendship discount. Clear is the absolute best way to help you get back to what you love. They have locations in over 35 airports across the country, making it safer, easier, and faster to reunite with loved ones or take that much needed vacation. It works great with pre-check too. And right now, for a limited time, you can get your first two months of Clear for free. Go to clearme.com slash millionaire and use code millionaire. That's C-L-E-A-R-M-E dot com 
slash millionaire and use code millionaire for your first two months of clear for free. Clearme.com slash millionaire and use code millionaire. Hey guys, are you guilty of stealing and wearing your wife's panties around the house? Well, if you're like me, then yeah, you do it all the time. Or maybe you're just one of those normal guys that steals your girlfriend's or wife's skincare instead. Hey, I used to do that too, but not anymore. You know why? It's because I use the best natural face serum for men, and it's called Caldera Lab. And as you can tell, I even have it on right now. See, Caldera Lab is a company with a conscience, unlike me. They're the only men's skincare line certified by Made Safe, EcoCert, PETA, and Leaping Bunny. Whether you are tackling dry skin, acne scars, wrinkles, or just want to invest in healthier skin, this is the product for you. See, Caldera Lab produces a serum called The Good. It's a non-toxic, natural serum made 100% from plants. And guess what? They're going the extra mile in sourcing. All their ingredients are either organically farmed or wild harvested by hand with a team of botanists right outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. The Good by Caldera Lab works on all skin types. It works with a beard, a bald head, or even those men with dry scalps. You shouldn't have to decide between clean, sustainable ingredients and real results. All of their products are easy to use and simple to apply. You can apply it at night or use it in the morning. And best of all, you can get it 100% risk-free. If you don't love it, they will refund you in full. So guys, stop stealing your wife's skincare. Use a product that's designed for men's skin and actually clinically proven to bring healthier, younger-looking skin. Again, the good by Caldera Lab is that non-toxic, vegan, multifunctional serum that I have been using every night before I go to bed. It's an easy, one-step routine that leaves my skin moisturized, youthful, and protects from free radical damage. And my wife says it's the best my skin has ever looked. So if you want to look like me and receive 20% off your first purchase of the good, then go to calderalab.com and use code millionaire at checkout. Again, go to calderalab.com and use code millionaire. So where did that money go to use? Because that makes perfect sense. Like you're saying, I mean, you had an opportunity and now even random people like my grandma might even know, hey, e-commerce, more people are doing it and you might as well take advantage if you can get money to expand your business like this. And a lot of people are understanding. So where did that money go? The use of proceeds there, because in e-commerce, one of the critical things that you look at metrics wise is your unit economics. And that's basically breaking down when you look at how much money do you bring in from one order and then you deduct all the costs and then you need to have a positive contribution margin to then at scale have that cover your fixed costs. When the pandemic hit, we saw that scaled really well and we managed to keep that positive contribution margin, even though we had to scale logistics faster than we wanted to and sort of didn't manage to keep the costs as tight as we hoped. And when we have that and we can show a track record of six months of this contribution margin at scale will make sense for the business. That's when we decided now we're ready to market this because that in combination with customers being really happy, we managed to deliver really fast throughout even the high pressure of orders. That's when we felt now it's time to really market this and get this to the masses. So what we've done now since we closed that funding round is we've strengthened our marketing team. 
With marketing, now we have three and we are onboarding sort of digital agencies to help us scale PPC, marketing, SEO, and socials as well. So it's just bulk of this capital is going to really getting the name out there and showing more people that this service exists. And in case anyone was wondering, 5.6 million pounds is 7.6 million USD. And when I'm thinking e-commerce, I imagine you don't own any of the products. I was wondering if you own warehouses where it's stored or like, how's that work? Because I keep hearing logistics. So that came to the front of my mind. And I think this is an important part of why we're in pharmacy and why pharmacy can be a quite complex thing to build a business around. I mean, we like the challenge, but it does add an extra layer of complexity. And the reason is the way pharmacies are regulated, you need to oversee the whole process of packing an order. And you also need to, for certain products, you need to ask certain questions to the customer to make sure that what you're selling is safe and that it's going to, going to be used for the purpose intended. So we have our own warehouse and that is in East London. Is that expensive? It is quite expensive, relatively expensive, I would say, because we chose to have it in a quite good location. When we started out, the office is in the warehouse. So it's basically like in the corner, we have some desks. And the reason for doing that is because we develop the logistics systems ourselves, we need to be able to assess what is the packers doing when they pack and what can we make better in the process to make it more efficient. But I think that in time, we will look at moving out further out to get better rent and then sort of splitting out the business development a bit more from the warehouse. But at the moment, it's been critical in order to really develop the processes around packing. So that's why we've kept it quite central. Yeah, I just looked at your address. Yeah, dude, because London is known, I think it might be the most expensive real estate in the whole world. But I'm looking at where your location is, and you're pretty close to central London. I could definitely see where I'm like, that must be pricey. Yeah, I mean, we are in a business park quite close to the bank district, Canary Wharf, where all the major banks are. We can see it from there, but the area that we are in, it is a business park, and it has these units that are for storing sort of warehouse equipment and warehouse stock. So it's still made for its purpose, but it is, I think, relatively expensive compared to moving out further. And I've got a lot of people in the UK who actually listen. So what is Isle of Dogs? Is that what they recognize that? I know you say East London. They would recognize Canary Wharf. Okay, I've definitely heard of that too. Yeah, that's the bank district in London, or one of them. Nice. So yeah, I've definitely been in that area a few different times. That's how I know it's so expensive. Because every time I'm go, I'm like, damn, dude, this place is expensive. Okay. So yeah, that's where your warehouse is and you ship everything from there. And does it go out to everyone in the UK or most of your customers located in London? Most of our customers are, it's pretty much the same as where the population lives. So the major cities, that's where we have the most customers, but we have customers throughout the whole of UK. I mentioned earlier that we're really pushing fast deliveries. So what we do is we have our warehouse running until 10 PM in the evening. And that's when we have the pickup with Royal Mail and that sort of service covers the whole of UK. So anything placed before eight or 9 PM is packed the same day and then it's shipped. So we actually reach almost the whole of UK with next day delivery. What are the other differentiators for your business here? If we look at what we're trying to do, it's really the digital experience that we want to simplify. That's something that we're working all the time and we're testing the site to make sure that it's super easy for customers to shop. When you talk about innovation, it could be done on many different levels. And I think that what we're doing is we're innovating parts that the customer won't really see, but they will notice. When we look at the supply chain, for example, I managed to do all the buying up until a month ago with four and a half thousand lines and sort of 80 to 100 suppliers. And that is done because we are doing most of it automated through software. And in doing so, 
we're cutting out a lot of costs that other businesses would have to have. So in that sense, we can be more competitive. So if you look at the main advantages of shopping with us, it is the speed of the delivery and that we can be very competitive on pricing. That might be the thing that you're best at. I mean, your business is that y'all created your own software to automatically, like, say, if I go to Medino website, I want to buy aspirin right there. Does your software automatically just hit somebody up to buy it and put it in your warehouse? Or is it already in their, your warehouse there? It's already in the warehouse. If we're going to be able to pack, if you place an order at eight in the evening and we need to be able to send it out by 10, it has to be in our warehouse. So everything that we sell that's available on the site is in our warehouse. But what we do in the software is we manage to do really sophisticated forecasting to see what quantities should we hold. If we look at how we look at cash flow and how we want to run the business, we sort of never hold more than 30 days of stock in the warehouse. So we manage to turn that over really fast. And if we can do that, and also if we look at how the contracts we have with our suppliers, if we have a credit with 30 to 60 days and we are turning over the warehouse in 30 days, well, then we're on a negative working capital, which is really essential for us when we're growing our product range. Yeah, that's what it's going to allude to is that maybe you had 100 boxes of aspirin or something because that's your 30 days. So once you went down to 95 or something, your software automatically pings whoever sells that to y'all and y'all bring it in. So that might be the one thing that really makes your business, I guess, elite versus some of these other e-commerce pharmacies in the UK. Yeah, I think so. Especially if we look at how we manage during the spring is a lot of competitors, I think, rely on being able to quickly order stuff that is out of stock from their suppliers and then sending it out. And what happens when you have a fivefold increase in orders and you're also going to order from your supplier to be able to fulfill orders, you just can't do it. It's really hard to manage the logistics around packing a parcel when you don't have the product in stock. And at the same time, you see a surge in customers. So was that the first time that y'all ran out of supply? I imagine you would run out of supply if you had a 5x increase all of a sudden. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because everyone was panic buying both from online and from high street pharmacies. So the wholesalers also had a really hard time to keep up. What happened was we ran out and then we tried to order from the wholesalers and then they ran out and then sort of, we just had to sell what we could sell. But we did see a significant drop in availability of products for a couple of weeks before we noticed that the supply chain came back. But if we look at the delays in us fulfilling orders, because basically we only sell stuff we have in stock. But still, when you have that increase of orders and we weren't prepared, then trying to pack everything before 10 p.m., that was really hard. There were a few days where we were sort of two or three days behind in fulfilling orders. But after that, we managed to bounce back really fast. But that was also like one of the bigger challenges, I would say, to scale the warehouse team really fast from three people packing for eight hours a day to having 12 people packing for eight hours each a day in a matter of days. So were you one of those three people packing every day? I was doing that. I was packing during the day. And then sort of when I biked home, I sat and placed orders. How far is a bike ride from your warehouse? 11K. Gotcha. So that's when you get your exercise. Well, you're standing up all day packing too, huh? Yeah. You must be in great shape. The pandemic really helped me get in shape, like good shape. I bought a bike early on so I could go back and forth. And then, yeah, you're biking one and a half hours every day and then running around the warehouse just packing orders. So yeah, it helped a lot. Well, what does it look like in your warehouse when you're doing the packaging since you're dealing with these drugs and that's mattered a lot, it sounded like? Yeah. I mean, so we have a separate area or a separate room, actually 
that were only the pharmacist and the pharmacy technicians, which is pharmacy technicians as someone who's trained in handling medications. So that's a separate room where we have uh, medicines. And then we have a more open warehouse where we have sort of skincare and supplements and other type of more well-being and toiletry type of products. And then we have four packing stations in the major warehouse, and then we have two in the pharmacy area. So basically the way the pharmacy works, we're doing what's called dynamic slotting. So that's basically, we have loads of shelves and on the shelves, there are these barcodes. So when you receive a product from the supplier, it just comes in as a, on a pallet. And then someone in the warehouse scans the product and checks the expiry date, puts it on a shelf, puts in the quantity on the computer and then scans the shelf. And then that's done. So you don't really have a specific slot for the product. It just goes wherever there's space. And then the picking flow is, say you going to pick like 20 orders at the same time, then you fill that out in the software and then you grab a cart and then the software will tell you which slot to go to. And then you just take that product, put it in your cart, and then you take that one back to your packing table. Then you just scan any random product and the software will then locate an order with that product and it goes up on your screen and then it tells you which additional products to add, scan those and then close up the box, put filler in, uh, close it up and put a label on. So that's sort of the whole packing flow simplified. We have sort of different flows for the complexity of the orders. So if the order contains, for example, only one product, then it goes a lot faster. Or if it's a really bulky order, it goes in a separate flow. Our software also determines sort of which flow to put an order in. Nice. So this is all the same software that's doing the automatic orders and telling you, I guess it's giving you like a map in your warehouse of where to go for the treasure hunt. Yeah, it's the same software. It's the same database and it's different applications that we've built around it. So the buying is also looks at the database and looks at the previous sales. So yeah, everything is tied together in our software. What's the database built on? We're hosted on Heroku. How do you spell that? I've actually heard of Heroku, I think. H-E-R-O-K-U. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got you. Dude, I spelled it right the first time. That never <laughs> happens, I promise you. Because <laughs> that would seem like a tricky one. Okay, so that's where you built your database on, and then you build all these different applications, like you're saying. Because it's very technical, kind of what you're doing as far as purchasing and buying and the flow of orders coming in that everyone has to have a database like this. And then you can build out from there. So that's pretty cool. Okay. So yeah. And again, I'm not that technical either. So it's just cool to see what type of products people are using to get started because you only did it a few years ago. So it seems like this, at least it's worked for you. You've been using this the whole time. Yeah. And I mean, what comes with it is the scalability that's sort of because it's cloud hosted. So then it's just, if we have peaks in traffic, then it's handled, it just spins up additional servers to handle load. So it just makes a lot more cost efficient when you're hosting it that way. And how big is your warehouse? I mentioned square meters. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do the conversion. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> so we have three units, two of them are 140 square meters. And then one is sort of a hundred square meters. So it's not that big. And 140, just so everyone says 1,500 square feet. So yeah, you're right. It's not that big. All right. And we're holding like 5,000 SKUs in there at the moment. And we think we can grow it a bit more, but we are also considering sort of how should the growth plan look like in terms of scaling and finding a new warehouse. How close are you to maxing out right now in your warehouse? We definitely have more shelves to build. So I think that we can still go for a couple of months, but I think that after the summer, I think that we should be probably considered moving then. So a couple of more months, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's not that much leeway, to be honest. It's in the plan for the year. So it's something that we're working on at the moment to secure a new premise to scale to. I imagine you're renting right now. Are you going to be renting another place too? I mean, it sounds like moving the whole thing over, or I don't know if you'd get two locations. Like, how are you deciding how to do that? Because there's other people listening right now who probably have that same issue. 
when we look at pharmacy is that we have our license is actually tied to our current warehouse. So it is a bit of complexity there in terms of if we want to move the license. But what we're also looking at is sort of having some products in one warehouse and some in the other. So the prescription medication and some of the medicines to still have in our current premise and then have a health and beauty and supplement type of products in a separate warehouse. Well, cool. Well, thank you for diving in so much detail there here in the beginning of how you work and how you're able to stand out. So why don't we reel it back to before you even started Medino and how about your parents? Are they from there? My dad's from an island in Sweden called Gotland. So if you look at the Baltic Sea, you'll see the biggest island in the middle of the Baltic Sea. That's where my dad's from and that's where his family lives. And my mom's from the Philippines. Yeah, that's the reason I had to bring that up because when we did our pre-interview, you said you're Swedish. I'm like, you don't look Swedish to me, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I imagine that must have happened to everybody when I guess when you're growing up, right? Because you definitely have the Filipino complexion, right? Yeah. So my mom's from the Philippines. They met in the US when they were sort of around 20, I think. And they were on exchange year, both of them. And then mom moved back to Sweden and they both studied at the same university as I did. Nice. Where did they meet in the US? In Seattle. Oh, so their exchange programs randomly from she went from the Philippines there and he went from Sweden there and they went to Seattle and then came back to Sweden together. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So you grew up, I guess, in Sweden and you went to school just north of Stockholm. Yeah, I think one thing that I also think is that I did during my studies was instead of an exchange year, I went to the Philippines and I stayed there for six months. So there I got an internship at a advertising agency. So I lived with my cousin in Manila and I worked there and that was just a really great experience. I think that was the first time I was exposed to working in an office in general and, and doing it in a new country. It was a really cool experience. So I'm definitely happy I did that instead of sort of going to an exchange year or something like that. Oh, well, what was the difference? I mean, I can't imagine there are really any difference between Sweden and the Philippines, right? <laughs> wow. I'm joking, I'm joking by the <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was such a big cultural difference in everything, not only in work. So to me, it was just a really nice way of seeing where my mom's from and her family, because I've met them many times, but never really saw the place where they grew up. So it was a really great experience in terms of just understanding where they are coming from. But it's hard to pinpoint one cultural thing that is different because it's so much. How about the climate? Is the climate different at all? Yes, I walked to work a couple of times in Manila. I did in the beginning because in Sweden, we walk everywhere, but that didn't really work. I mean, I was completely soaked when I got to the office and I did that like twice. And then I'm like, okay, I'm taking a cab at work. <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't want to start off a work day sweaty. It was a great experience. I think like just working in advertising, it sort of sparked my interest in marketing. And that's also why I really liked marketing and sales and actually tried to get into the bigger advertising agencies after uni, but it's really competitive to get in. So I didn't really manage. But that was sort of what I was going for when I graduated. But yeah, what happened was I was contacted by a recruiter. A friend of mine had just given my name in a recruitment process. So I didn't know anything about the company I was going to. But yeah, I went through the whole interview process and ended up in that IT consultancy firm that where I then met my co-founders. And where was that located? So that was in Stockholm. Gotcha. And you're only in the Philippines for like six months, you said? Yeah. Gotcha. And so you met them there and then what happened? And how old were you at that point too? So I think I was 23 when I started working in Stockholm for the IT consultancy. For this story to go full circle and why I ended up in London, I think also we need to mention that I actually met my now wife in the Philippines when I was there during that internship. When I came back to Uppsala to finish my last semester, we did long distance between Stockholm and London. 
And then I went through this recruitment process and started working at that IT consultancy firm in Stockholm. So I did that and we did long distance for two and a half years between Stockholm and London. And then after that, this firm decided to try to expand to new countries in Europe. So I was one of the fortunate ones to get to move to London and try to establish a new branch there. But your co-founders with Medino still stayed in Stockholm. Again, Medino wasn't a thing yet. You were just doing the IT consulting all together. Yeah, so they moved together with me. So I was first on ground together with one of the co-founders and then shortly after one other followed as well to London. So we were uh, like we're working for this consultancy firm that's a thousand employees or so, but we were three of us in the UK office. Were y'all all friends at that point? No, we had met as colleagues and hung out, but we, we didn't know each other that well. Would you say you're not friends? You didn't even like the guys? I remember talking to one of them in an office party when I had been like asked if I could, I had applied and gotten the position to move to London. So I had talked to one of them quite a bit. The other one, he was also one of the founders of that IT consultancy firm. So I had spoken to him many times before. So yeah, we knew each other, but it's a big business. And yeah, we didn't know each other that well. And I guess at this point in time, why don't you just tell us their names to make it easier? Uh, Lars and Henrik. Okay, so I see Lars and I see Henrik. Okay, because I'm on the About Us page, so I know. Yeah, yeah. And the last co-founder there is Victor. He's not from that IT consultancy firm, but me and Henrik got to know him in London. And then when we started Medino, he was the first developer we brought on board. So you and these guys still working for the IT firm and you all happen to go to London. I guess you're all in the same branch since you all expanded over there. Yeah. And is this downtown London, I imagine? Yeah. So we were in Soho in central London. And then keep walking me through the timeline here. Yeah, I mean, then we built that and evolved that office. And then after a few years, for strategic reasons, it was chosen to not continue that initiative, but we wanted to stay in London. So then we did. And that's sort of where the idea from Medino sprung. Yeah, but so what were y'all doing with that? Because IT can almost mean anything, I mean, to me. Like, so what were y'all doing? I'm just trying to understand like your background and maybe how this might have helped Medino. So what was it normal projects? So this is software consultancy. And if we look at the type of clients that we typically brought on, they worked in highly transactional systems or so originally banking, but then also moved into other industries where tech development became a very essential part. So we work with a lot of media companies. If we look at the companies we worked with in London, and most of them were in, within media. What we did was we did consultancy around software development and also actual hands-on development. So it's pretty much like a digital agency or tech agency, but we also blended with the teams on site with expertise. So it could be that we sent in one or two consultants to blend with the client teams in order to pace up a product or project or add essential skills to the team to be able to build something that would cater to the market. So I see how Medino might have came from this if you were working on this with your old companies, huh? Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of when I reflected on it and sort of having worked in consultancy where you're trying to help customers optimize processes, build software to make their business work better. The idea of e-commerce applied to pharmacy, it's I mean, it's not original in that sense, but I think that what we bring to the table is that really software centric approach. And that's where we think that we can really make this stand out. But it sounds like, again, you were doing that for other companies at first. So you're already in that mindset and getting practice. How much time did you spend before you decided you're going to go into pharmacy? Like when the, that branch closed? Because you sound like you looked at other industries too. We started to discuss this in the summer. So it's like June, July of 2017. And I think that we were quite early on that we decided actually. 
Because also, I think that what was quite an inspiration for us was there is a company in Sweden that have done quite like really successfully managed to take the high street offering online and grown really rapidly. They're now considered one of the biggest e-commerce companies in the Nordics. So that was an inspiration. And looking at that and knowing that we had used that service back in Sweden and we had friends that were using it, we saw that there is a potential here that no one has taken that spot in the UK. Well, yeah. What was the name of that company or service? It's called Apotea. I know you know how to spell that. I do have no clue. Tell me how to spell that. A-P-O-T-E-A. So y'all didn't really spend a lot of time, I guess, like I was thinking of looking at all these different industries. You kind of all knew right in the get-go when you started deciding, you're like, hey, this is what we need to roll with. Yeah. So then we founded the company and really early on tried to get the, because from talking to other people in the industry, we quite quickly realized that it's going to take a while to get these licenses. So tried to make sure we had everything in place to submit and get the pharmacy license. How hard was it to find a pharmacist? Because you needed to find that next? Yeah, I checked my messages on LinkedIn. Basically, what I did was I just sent 40 emails to pharmacists in London. And there were only a few who answered, maybe like a handful. So seven or eight of them, maybe. And then I think I had four interviews or interviews. I met with them in pubs or cafes and discussed with them. And yeah, we managed to find a pharmacist who believed in us or <laughs> she thought that it was a scam when she got the message. But then after chatting with her for a bit, and then I met up with her in a cafe and discussed with her what we're trying to do. She said, I can come and work with you as a contractor or a freelancer once a week and just get to know you guys and start to understand what differentiates your business. And if I think this is something that I want to support in. Well, what was your conversation with her in the pub? Because I want to know, because again, I might think it's a scam too. Did you have a website at that point in time? And just tell me how you convinced her. We didn't have anything. There was nothing. So we had set up the business name. I knew there wasn't really a website yet. I'm like, maybe you might have a landing page. That was the only thing that I could think of. But tell me, how did you pitch her? What did you tell her in the pub? Basically, we tried to, and I think it's a similar pitch to what I've told you in we're trying to bring the high street offering of pharmacy online. And we think that with our knowledge and software, we think that we can create something that makes us stand out in terms of delivery and customer experience. And that's what we're trying to do. And what we're doing now is looking for a pharmacist to join our team and to help realize this vision. So it was very quite standardized pitch in that sense. But I think I met with her maybe three or four times in before she decided that, okay, I'll come and work with you guys. And then after that, we could go ahead and look for a premise to file the application. Yeah. So how old was she? I think she was 28 or 27 at that time. That's what I was going to point out. I imagine it probably had to be a younger pharmacist. Yeah, I think in general, all the conversations I had with pharmacists, and this is, I think, one of the great things of us not knowing about the industry was like, we were very naive in thinking that everything, like for us, it's quite clear what we need to do. We set up this vision and then we can see the steps that we have to take to get there. But then you try to explain it to someone who is trained in a retail pharmacy and they have all of these routines of how things work. And it was really tricky to explain how we are different and why we think it would work. I think it's with any industry. And if you look at anything that is moving from a traditional retail or high street offering online, it's very hard to bridge that gap to someone. So yeah, I think that's also what we looked for when I was sourcing candidates on LinkedIn. Sort of, I was looking at age-wise, do we think that digital would resonate with them or not? What happened after you finally got her on after a couple of different meetings? Yeah, so after that, she started to work with us like once a week 
Because it's quite common in the UK that when you're working in pharmacy, there are some who have a full-time employment with one particular pharmacy. So they work there full-time. But it's also quite common to have freelancers that work a few days here, a few days there, and they charge a day rate or an hourly rate for their work. It was quite easy when I looked for candidates. I also looked for people who do that. So they're working as a freelancer or a locum, as it's called in, in the UK. And so it was quite easy for her to fit that into her schedule to come to us once a week and work with us. And here with Jonathan Cogley. How are you doing, Jonathan? Hi, Austin. Doing great. Thanks. Cool. Uh, Jonathan, I actually interviewed him on episode 85, and he actually helped a lot of our business founders on Group Call 14. So if you're a Patreon member, you can check that out. So your company is Logic Boost Labs. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So we're a startup accelerator. We're based in San Diego and we work with startups that are early revenue or pre-revenue. So you've got a great business idea. Maybe you've validated the market. You've got one or two customers or maybe a few beta customers and you're looking to grow your business. We're the accelerator that would help you. We have three startup partners already. One is in Israel, one is in Tennessee and one is in LA. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. So if people wanted to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to reach you? definitely visit our website. So logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. Sign up for a free mentoring session with me. We'll talk about your business and see if you're a good fit. Okay. So it's free to sign up. Yeah. We're looking for startups. It doesn't cost anything. We're looking to do a free mentoring session with them, learn a little bit more about their business and see if it's a good fit for our team. So our team would then bring angel investment so we can write checks up to say $300,000. And we also include services so we might be able to provide a VP of sales to help get your startup going. It could be, you know, customer success help. It could be technical help. We have a CTO on staff. And yeah, that's the approach. We basically accelerate your startup and give you a better chance of being successful. And our goal is to take startups from effectively $0 to 1 million ARR. And where do they need to go to one more time, Jonathan? Logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. Energetic Austin here. And you know what? First impressions are everything. So if you're looking to make an impact with your online content, you need Issue. The easiest way to make your creative ideas come to life and share everywhere you want to be seen. Issue is the all-in-one platform to create and distribute beautiful digital content from marketing materials to magazines to flipbooks and brochures and more. There's no need for endless scrolling through PDFs. Issue features your creative in an easy to view way on every device. Make it once and distribute it everywhere without reformatting. Your content is already optimized for engagement and ready to share. Issue also works seamlessly with tools you already use like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. Not only that, but Issue helps creators, marketers, designers, and really anyone who wants to make content that stands out. And guess what? You can start using Issue for free. They also offer premium features that give a more customized experience. Get started with Issue today for free. Or if you sign up for a premium account, you'll get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use code millionaire. That's issue, I-S-S-U-U.com slash podcast and use promo code millionaire at checkout for your free account or 50% off your premium account. That's issue, I S S uu.com slash podcast and use code millionaire. This lady, she starts working with y'all, I guess, kind of part time. Did you already have a warehouse or like tell us about trying to find a warehouse, especially with a hundred thousand only at that point in time? 
Yeah, so we tried to, or we looked around mostly East London for different warehouse premises. And it was, what we were looking for is where can we sign up and not move in? <laughs> uh, <laughs> because, because you obviously want to have the address to put on the application, but you don't want to have to pay for it. So are you just looking for the, a little office space at that point in time and not the whole warehouse space? We were doing both. We had a few different considerations, but the challenge there, as I mentioned, is like once you have signed up and applied for a license, then you're going to be that license is in that particular building. So we had to find somewhere where we thought this is a place where we can actually host a warehouse as well. And what did the landlord say when it's what three of you guys total co-founders and y'all walking up, you're all young 20s and you're like, hey, I want to open a pharmacy warehouse here. Can't remember if there was a particular reaction. I think they were like, okay, go for it. It was really weird because you have 140 square meters in one of those units. And then you put like three desks in there. So it looks really weird. We bought a football quite early on so we could play with football in the warehouse. Are we talking about the soccer ball? Yeah. Oh, I'm making sure again. Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't think y'all have an American football. Even Y'all don't even sell those over there, I don't think. After you signed the lease, this is a huge deal because, I mean, up to this point, you really hadn't thrown that much capital into it, right? So that's why I feel like this is a significant moment. Yeah, it's a lease for a year. I think it's a three-month breaking clause. So it is deciding now we're actually going for it for real. I went to Ikea, got the cheapest desks you can get. We all had laptops already, so we didn't have to buy anything there. We got the internet installed pretty fast. Yeah, then it's just getting to work. So that means starting to shape and code the website. And uh, I started to basically cold call suppliers. We didn't have any shelves, so we started buy shelves, <laughs> build shelves. Then we started to think about, and this is when I talked about dynamic warehouse slotting, we started to read up on what logistics solutions should you have when you scale a warehouse. Because typically, or what I think of before I had read up on this is just you have a specific slot for a specific product and then that's assigned and that's where you top up the product. So this was quite new area for us. So we had to read up on how to build efficient logistics solutions. And then quite early on, we started to figure out how do we structure the shelves? Because you want to do these picking routes in the warehouse where you want to walk the shortest amount of distance. You want to be able to route the pickers so that they don't collide. And you want to make sure that you can cluster products so that say that I'm picking five orders and we have a hundred of them to select from in the order list. The software has to pick orders that are closer to each other. So that's also part of how do you make it possible to walk easily throughout the whole warehouse. So planning those things, but that's sort of evolved as we went. I can't really remember which small things we did the first couple of days because it's sort of, it's blurred together quite a bit. But yeah, I think one of the main things was to start to talk to wholesalers and try to understand how we order products. And that's quite hard to talk to wholesalers when you don't have a pharmacy license. Well, tell me how that went. Uh, well, they said, come back when you have a pharmacy license. So then you just contact another wholesaler? Yeah, and we kept going. Then we have to bring in, we still have to test the system and we need to bring in products. So what we did was we looked at health food stores, which wholesalers do they use? Because you don't need a license for that. So then we can open an account with those and then we could buy products from them, test them out on our platform to see that everything worked in terms of putting them live on the site. How do we put them in the warehouse and that stuff? So it was just a matter of finding someone who would supply us in the beginning. So we had stuff to test out. So you're saying stuff like fish oil and I don't know, lotion and stuff like that? Yeah, natural organic skincare. And that's something that we're big on at the moment and something that we're trying to grow. But that's also where we started. If we look at the first wholesaler that we opened an account with, they are uh, supplying mostly health uh, food stores. How do you find wholesalers? Quite early on, we went to Birmingham. It's a trade show for pharmacies. 
So we went there and there are loads of wholesalers exhibiting there. So we started to network there and try to find which ones to we could potentially partner up with. So that was the first way that you were able to make those connections. You went to this Birmingham trade show and how much supply did you buy there in the beginning? Again, this is all before you get that pharmacy license. Yeah, I think I remember the first order or so when we ordered for one and a half thousand pounds and it arrived on the pallet. That was the first time I'm using one of those pallet forks to... Oh yeah, that you pump up with the hydraulic thing with the arm. Yeah, yeah. That was the first time I used one of those. That's <laughs> really exciting. Yeah, I know. That's what I was saying. These are a big deal to you because like before you're doing consultancy, you're like, this is the first time I've done this. This is the first time I've done that. First time you've built a shelf. <laughs> All right. So finally, you have products to put on the one shelf that you have in the warehouse, in the 2,000 square foot warehouse. And then from there, what happens? From there, we start to test the system. So what we did was we did invite only. So friends and family, we asked them to test the system, try to purchase products. We also, what we did was me and our pharmacist, we did a couple of focus groups. So basically we invited friends over to our flats and then we just offered them pizza. And then we just asked them, what would you be expecting to buy from us if we say we're an online pharmacy or a digital pharmacy? And then we just anything, any product or any service that they listed, we just brought that back and tried to see, is it possible for us to implement this? So very much research based on customer expectations to decide what to do next. And so I guess over that time, let's just say 2017, because you started about middle of 2017, right? Yeah, that's when we founded the business. I think that we got access to the warehouse early 2018. I guess you hadn't made money, obviously, up till that point. So 2018 was your first full year and you had the warehouse? No, we launched the site, I think, in Q2. Uh, launched this, I mean, launched that with invite only to test it out. Because also what we wanted to make sure was we had a pharmacy license before we go out more publicly. And the reason is we didn't want to be just a beauty shop or a health food shop. We wanted to make sure that we establish ourselves early as a pharmacy. Because I think also when you think about pharmacy and health and the trust aspect, I think that's really important. And that's also what we're trying to build on. We have a lot of educational material on helping our customers for optimum health in general. And then also we have pharmacists who help answer questions. So we're trying to really mimic the pharmacy experience, but on a digital platform. So for us, it was really important to not start marketing before we have the full right to call ourselves a pharmacy. I understand that it wasn't fully launched, but it was like your first full year still in business. So even in the, your first full year there in business, how much money did you all end up making that 2018? Let's see. Yeah. So this is sort of, yeah, before we actually launched, yeah, that's 30K. Were y'all still just living all your savings at that point? Yeah, savings. I think that's maybe a bit into, I can't remember when we started to pick up a really, uh, just a small salary so that we could keep living, but it was very tight in terms of paying ourselves at that time. Yeah. But even 2018, y'all hadn't paid yourself then, it sounds like, right? I think mid 2018, we started to have a small salary. Yeah. It must've been small if y'all only did 30K in sales, right? And so, I mean, up to that point, once y'all started getting this stuff in, I don't think it sounded like you're a pharmacy approved at this point in time yet, but were y'all like, okay, finally, this seems like it's going the way we thought it would, or was there any like big hiccups there in that first full early year? We saw that it's possible to find customers and customers are willing to buy from us. If we look at the basket size, for example, it's very low. I'm looking at the average now for that. Like in the beginning, our basket size was below 10 pounds. And how much is it today? around 21, 22 pounds. Nice. And I guess that helps once you get, get more product in, especially the pharmacy product, right? It helps, but it also depends on how you do your offering in terms of when do you offer free shipping and how do you upsell the checkout and also how expensive are your products? 
So in the beginning, if you look at the pharmacy offering that we had in the beginning, I think that the products, the average cost per product was quite low. And that also is reflected on the basket size. Why don't you just walk us through, I guess, again, the last couple of years and what other hiccups you might've had or highlights as far as opening your own warehouse and building out your e-commerce business here? Yeah, I think going live with a full license and that's in, in January, 2019, that's sort of we've been working towards this. It's coming together because we filed a, an application for the pharmacy license. It took more than a year to get approved. And at the same time, we've been building this tech solution from scratch, which for us also is really inspiring and fun because we can really look at what we need in terms of what does the system need. And I think now also when we have new recruits join, they also really like what I think is really appealing and cool when you enter an organization that has the capability of just changing the system as we want. There is so much potential there that you don't have to do these manual workarounds and any data that you would need for decision-making in marketing or in buying or in anything business-related, it's there with us. We can easily pull that out. So I think if you have an analytical mindset, that's really interesting part of our business. But yeah, if we look at the year of like after our launch, I think tweaking and understanding marketing was sort of one of the next hurdles because we are software people. And then trying to understand how to efficiently recruit a customer base. Because one thing that we thought was when you switch this on, what happens if we're overwhelmed with order? <laughs> and you have that sort of idea that maybe someone's going to find like, but you switch it on and then you have five orders in a day. So that didn't really happen. But then we started to look at what ways can we use to market. And quite early on, we understood quickly how to work with search marketing and took that to build that capacity within our team. So quickly managed to recruit customers that way. Well, tell me, how do you do that? I think Google Shopping was pretty new at that time in the UK. So we could have contacted agencies, but for us, it was about reading up. And you're young enough that you kind of want to figure it out, I would think, right? You figured everything out up to this point. Yeah, absolutely. So it was basically just reading up. And then what we also did was we had through our network, we managed to get in touch with a PPC consultant who at a very reasonable cost had like calls twice a week with me and Henrik to go over. These are the tweaks I would do in your ads campaigns. And that because at this point also, the whole idea is we're still trying to validate the service, make sure that on a unit economics basis, it makes sense. And then we have to find a way to acquire customers at a cost efficient way. So it was just learning as we're going and tweaking all of those cost drivers along the way. Yeah. So were your products overall up to that point, right? I guess we'll say 2019. Was it the same price as other like walk-in retail pharmacies or was your price like more expensive if I'm trying to buy, again, some aspirin, for example? No, we were lower priced. Oh, you still were? Yeah. And that also comes, I think, from the, when I explained the supply chain with small, quite small chains of pharmacies, what happens is I think that the pricing is reflected in that. So you can get better deals on other types of products, but I think for pharmacy products, it is quite a level playing field in terms of pricing. Yeah. Okay. So pharmacy pricing is still going to be the same. If I walked into a UK pharmacy and got some Viagra, which I need all the time, right? It's going to be the same price as Medino online. No, we're probably going to be better priced than the high street pharmacy. So how much better priced? Maybe 10, 15%. That's a decent amount, right? It's not like 1% or 5%, right? Okay. Like that's what we think that we can offer by being more efficient to really be cost efficient and pass that on to our customers. Well, even in the first year, you're able to have that type of pricing or would you say it's about the same? I think that when we set the pricing and the strategy, it has to, we have to also look at where do we want to be in a couple of years? 
So we know that we're going to, with the current volumes, we're not going to be able to reach profitability on the smaller volumes that we have. But in the long run, we think that if we run the calculations, we see that a certain amount of margin makes sense if we reach X volume. Well, were you losing money on each sale then in the beginning? In the beginning, yes. Okay, see, that's what I'm saying. Like, I have no clue because you haven't brought this up at all. To be honest, is like one of your differentiators. So overall, your pricing's better than all the retail pharmacies. Yeah, we're losing money not on the like if we calculate the marketing in there, but not if we look at just processing the order without marketing. So in just sending out the order and processing the order, we're still making a positive contribution. But again, because you're playing long term, you're still losing money overall, even at this point in the beginning, right? Yes. Okay. What needs to be done if we look at the basket size is essential here to manage to drive that up. Because for example, the shipping cost, that will be a constant. And the marketing cost, as long as you get me there, that's what you're saying. That's what you need that basket size. So I'm glad you brought that up when you're saying like back then, basket size was 10 bucks. And if you're paying a dollar to get me there and I'm going to spend $20 versus $10, that makes a huge difference. And in the beginning, they're only spending 10 bucks and you now need them 20. Yeah. So that's sort of what do we need to do on the site to make sure that the basket size goes up. And one of the main parts there is working with our offering in terms of product range to get more expensive products in. You can still have a quite good acquisition cost on lower priced products as long as the customer also places more expensive products in their basket. When I keep bringing up the example of aspirin, you realize that, hey, Austin, like not only will he get the medicine easy and maybe the next day from y'all, even in the beginning, but Austin's definitely going to want it to be cheaper. If it's cheaper than whatever he goes to pay in, then he's going to be here, right? Is it So that was your thought process there? Yeah, the process was, I think we thought that if a customer comes in and they test out the service, they might do that for a lower basket size just to test it out. But what we did, what we looked at then was when the customer comes back, does the basket size actually go up? And it didn't go up as significantly as we thought it would. So then we had to rethink, like, how do we drive up the basket size. One thing we looked at is where do we put the threshold of when we offer free shipping? So we've tested uh, multiple different models there. And now we think we've found one that we're happy with at the moment, but we've tested uh, completely free shipping. We've tested to have a threshold of spend X amount. Otherwise you're not allowed to check out to incentivize, to add more products to the basket. And we also tested to have, and that's, I think what the customer is most used to, at least in the UK is to have spend X amount and then you get free shipping and spend X amount, and then you get free shipping next day. So that's where we're at the moment. That makes sense. And I've heard that over and over. So I imagine is your X amount 20 pounds right now as far as free shipping? And then if I spend 50? 15 pounds for free shipping and 25 pounds for free next day. Yeah. So you did a lot of different tests on that? Yeah. We, I think over a six month period, I think we tried three or four different combinations. Yeah, and that makes sense. So and again, anyone who has an e-commerce site, if they're wondering, like, should I get free shipping, always pay for it or whatever, it's like you want to get a threshold depending on what you're selling, what makes sense. Like I've seen some that say 100, some say 50, but it depends on what they're selling. And it's, what you're selling is a lot of kind of low-priced products at the end of the day, it seems like. Yeah, but you also want to look at the conversion rate because that's going to drop. The conversion rate is going to drop as you increase the threshold for free shipping. And if the conversion drops, well, then the customer acquisition cost goes up. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I totally understand. But you have enough customers where you can test it out. Just depends on how much traffic you're getting. It sounds like eventually you got enough traffic that you can test that. But some people like want to fucking A-B test everything and try this stuff. And if like, if you don't have the volume coming in, then you can't do that. I mean, you could, but you're not going to, it sounds like it takes a while to make the actual decision to go ahead and do it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think when you run split testing like that, it has to be in the beginning, I think it's good to look at the market in general to get some guidance on what customers are used to. And then once you have more volume, then it's, as you say, it's easier to actually run tests and validate them what works best. Yeah. If you would have done your sh free shipping test on day one, when you had five customers, you don't know, right? Like it doesn't matter. It's just like, you try to look at, again, I guess, whoever you're going against kind of do what they're doing and then test as you get more transactions. So what else, I guess, over that first year or going into year two? One of the big wins is when we hit positive unit economics and also calculating in marketing. So the more we are marketing, the more we actually are making. And that's really cool feeling. When you see all the cost drivers are in place, we can see that we're controlling them really well. And we managed to have a positive contribution margin after marketing. That's sort of one of the highlights, I think, in terms of the business and getting to a place where we wanted to be. Up to 2020, were you like, hey, this is going to work or no? Or did you ever have any doubts? Yeah, doubts. I think what we were looking for when we started the business was we wanted to work with a business model that has sort of been proven elsewhere. I think that was something that we thought was really interesting because then it relies more on execution than innovating the business model. But yes, of course, there are doubts along the way. So what are the other doubts? If we look at e-commerce penetration in the UK, it's like around 30% or a bit less than 30%. In pharmacy, it's about 2%, up to four at some points uh, this year. And if the digitization doesn't happen, that, that customers start to move over to shopping online, then we can't build a customer base where there is no digital consumer behavior. So this makes sense because if you would have launched this, you're saying probably even, let's say five years earlier, maybe it was like a half percent in the pharmacy space, right? And you'd been like, shoot, we have this awesome software we're made and everything else, but people still aren't ready. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I think that's when we look at competitors that started 15 years ago, I think that is one of the hurdles that they had, that the users are not shopping online. Then there's only a small share of customers that you actually can market to. So the timing here is quite essential. And when we assess the market and look at the users, like which user is it that actually spends money on pharmacy? It's the age group where you typically start to have a family. It happens to be also that the age group that typically starts to have a family are born digital. They are born around 84, 85. So they have that digital behavior. So that's what we've spotted in terms of the users is that the digital generation are now starting to spend more on pharmacy and they are likely to move online given their behavior on other channels. Did you research that before you launched Mentino? That's one of the findings when we looked at competition and trying to understand why haven't they grown faster or why haven't they become a top of mind brand for online pharmacy? And that's why? That's one of the theories that we have, at least. So how are you able to validate or not validate? Because everyone has to come up with a theory, right? And then it makes sense to me. But did you ever like talk to any people who tried to launch it before or do any like past research like that? Because it'd be hard to find those people. That's why I was just curious. I didn't know you have any suggestions. No, but I think if you look at, for example, e-commerce of clothing, that sort of started to boom when the generation that also is born, 84, 85, started to earn money and went online to buy clothes. And if you look at food delivery has been around, you could order food delivery online, I think during the IT bubble, but it didn't really take off because the consumers that have money and that have the online behavior are just not there. So when we look at different businesses and when they manage to grow and manage to get that foothold in sort of a tipping point in changing the consumer behavior, it's quite often driven by the generation born 8485. So that's our, our theory. 
And so you finally became unit economical profitable, right, in 2020. And so walk us through this past year and what your vision is for the future. The way we managed to scale when the demand really went up in March and April, we managed to send out the orders relatively fast. Customers were really happy that they could order from home and also customers that weren't used to shopping online started to go online to shop. And having built this and, and worked on really simplifying the customer experience really helped us in recruiting also older types of customers. So if we look at the type, our demographics on sales in April and May this year or last year, we see that there are a lot of plus 65 year olds shopping from us a lot more than before. So I think like what happened with the pandemic is the older generations were forced to be educated on shopping online. And we happen to be in a very good position to fulfill their needs there. So we scaled well during the summer. And then we, when we saw that we think that we still can recruit a bigger customer base and we see that the customers are really liking the service, how do we reach out to a bigger audience? So then we started to look at what type of investment in marketing we should go for. And that's when we started to pitch for this round that we closed in October. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being a patron. Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across a podcast a few weeks ago and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment and at the amount that you, uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier. So yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling like a looking for another podcast and yours popped up and I was like, well, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one and I love how in depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, mining key guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm in the franchising, okay, right? Perfect. So, well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask, you know, you hold them to numbers. And so I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah. <laughs> you really did start yeah. off with, I thought so yeah. too. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was. And, and and he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon too. I was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple weeks, but uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode 165. Well, yeah, well, thank you for walking us through everything. What's your goal here for the next couple of years as far as projected growth of Medino? We're aiming to become a household brand when it comes to pharmacy shopping online. So that means trying to get out there to the masses and marketing this. So if we look at the software and keeping developing that, there is still a lot to be done there to keep making it better. But I think that the bigger challenges ahead now is to just make sure that customers see us and test us out. And that's what we're aiming to do. So that's why we're putting a lot of effort into recruiting for marketing and to onboard partnerships to be able to just increase our output there. If we look at our growth during last year, for example, we I think four and a half times growth from 2018 or no, sorry. So 2019, from 2019 to 2020, we had sort of a four and a half times growth. And that's, if we can do that again, that'd be amazing. I think that we're aiming for three or four times growth this year, if we manage to get everything right. And it feels really great that we've, now we are in the beginning when we're a really small team, everyone is doing everything. Now we've branched out. We've recruited a strong team in multiple areas. So I'm really excited to see how we can increase our output now going forward, because it really feels like we're in a good position with this funding and with the team that we have to scale in a good way. Yeah. And it sounds like it. So thanks Christian for coming on and sharing your story and I appreciate your time. I guess if you have any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening right now. 
I think looking at entrepreneurship in general and looking at running your own business, I think that there is so much that you can do on your own that you don't need others to help you with. And problem solving and working your way all the way to launching a product, that's a really exciting journey. So if you're willing to put in the effort, I really think it's so rewarding when you start to see how you're pulling in customers and seeing how customers enjoy the service. That's the most fulfilling thing. I really encourage everyone who feels like they have an idea to try to explore it because it's just a really cool experience and so rewarding. Yeah. And what's the uh, best way for anyone to reach out to you to say thank you for doing the interview? Uh, you can reach me on email. So christian at medino.com or write a message on LinkedIn. Just search for Christian and Medino and you'll find me there. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on, Christian. Yeah, thank you. I know what you're thinking right now. You want more tech-based interviews, don't you? Well, if you become a Patreon member, we've got plenty of extra interviews for you right now. Just jump on over to the Patreon feed. Plus, I've got a special spreadsheet that has every interview categorized by industry. So you can easily jump to interviews that will help your business immediately. So to become a member, just check out our website, millionaire-interviews.com. And if you made it this far into the podcast and you aren't a Patreon member, well, then what's holding you back? Message me on Pornhub and let me know. My username is bizboy69. That's B-I-Z-B-O-I-6-9.